welcome to the Be Glad Movement. My name's Pollyanna and I'm on a mission to bring you as many stories as possible of good coming out of bad and reasons to be glad. In this episode I talk to Simon Harmer. Simon was a medic on patrol in Afghanistan when he stepped on an IED, an improvised explosive device. He lost both of his legs Despite his injuries, Simon has gone on to do lots of charity work, fundraising and speaking events. He feels it's now his duty to serve in a different way and give back having been so fortunate to receive so much help while he was recovering. Well, um, so I was born and raised in the, in the south of England. Um, I went to, you know, to school in, in Hampshire, um, had a bit of a plan on what I was going to do in life. So initially I wanted to join as as a fireman, but that didn't kind of work out and um ended up joining the military as a as a as a para, as a paramedic or as a medic. Cool. So uh, yeah, it's been it's it's been a roller coaster ride and you know the military for me was um kind of not what I expected because I basically just did sport all the time, sport and adventure training, as much as I could possibly could. So, how um, old were you when you went in? How old was I? I was 20 when I first went in. Right. So, um, and actually that's quite old really. Um, a lot of the guys that, you know, a lot of my mates, they joined a lot earlier than that. A lot, you know, sort of 16, 17 years old. Yeah. But I don't think I was actually mature, almost mature enough to join at that age. So, um, yeah, I joined, I joined a little bit, uh, a little bit later. Right, and so sport was a big part of, of your military life and then you trained as a paramedic, right? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, like I said, sport was central to really why I stayed in, I suppose. Um, in, the, in the winter, um, I used to do a lot of cross-country skiing and in the summer, um, my passion was um, triathlon. So I really, really tried hard to avoid wearing a uniform and, and actually I think I was pretty successful. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, my husband's good at booking lots of AT actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And AT, you know, one adventure training was was really one of the things that um I enjoy as well. And you know, at the back of every sort of major ex- uh, exercise or you know, training exercise or anything like that, um, I always took an opportunity to to get involved in adventure training and and I found that if I volunteered for stuff then at the end of it, you know, there'd always be an opportunity to get involved with stuff that was going on locally, whether it was parachuting, whether it was, you know, whitewater rafting, uh, potholing, it didn't matter what it was, sailing, scuba diving, I'd do it all. Yeah, there are so many opportunities in, in a military career, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. and, you know, and obviously I, you know, went to some pretty unsavoury places, um, so... You know, within the first three years of my sort of military career, I I, I hadn't really my, my feet hadn't really touched the ground. You know, I'd been all over the world. Um, I deployed out to Bosnia twice. Um, you know, I'd done promotion courses. I've been on massive training exercises. So it was a real you know a real roller coaster drop, uh, ride. My you know, like I said, my first three years and. Um, that didn't really stop, to be fair. Um, 2003, I, I went to an invasion in Iraq. I came back and literally put my bags down, changed from desert kit to, to temperate kit and went out to the Congo um, in Central oh. Africa. Um, wow. So, 
yeah, it was it was a busy, busy career. Cool. But you enjoyed it, I guess. Yeah, I did. And, um, you know, one of the best jobs I did, well, it was one of the best and one of the worst. Um, I, I was a, a recruit training instructor, um, both as a corporal and a sergeant. Um, and it was, training recruits was was it was easy um, as, you know, you just delivered a set of, um, well, a training programme. Um, but, but actually dealing with sort of um, the politics that surrounded it, well, that was difficult. That was hard, but you know, I still, you know, occasionally I bump into ex ex recruits and and it's great catching up with them and hearing about their military career because yeah, it was a good it was a good time. Cool, cool. So tell us about how things all changed for you in a in a blast in a flash. So, you know, I I, um, I was I was being deployed out to Afghanistan. And actually, when I, before I went out there, um, my job was supposed to stay in in Camp Bastion and um, you know provide a role there. Um, I don't even know what I was supposed to do because I never actually did that job. Um, right. As soon as I landed in Afghanistan, I was told that they needed more medics on the ground, so um, I was sent to a place called uh, PB Four or Patrol Base Four in Babaji in in Afghanistan, which was, wasn't far away from Goresh. Right. And our job there was, you know, we patrolled every day, um, well, twice a day really. Um, it, it was a very, very busy time, you know, for some, for including, you know, someone that was a medic as well. It was very busy for me as well. Um, yeah. We treated, a, you know, a lot of of very, very serious injuries. Um, it was a pretty basic place. Um, we lived in a compound, um, you know, the usual sort of sketch. It was. 12 foot high sort of walls around us and a few buildings inside uh you know no running water no electricity and and that's kind of where we lived um for the tour that we we're out there for uh i only i was only in the country for a month um and uh you know that was a my early exit was the result of um you know losing both of my legs in, a, in an ied and i um i kind of remember you know exactly what happened so i remember waking up really early in the morning because um on the monday morning to um to leave our patrol base to go on a, a quite extended sort of patrol yeah that was going to last probably about three or four days so the idea being that some of us were going to leave early under the cover of darkness um and then we we're going to meet up with some other troops later on in the day and um and then start sort of start our, our 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 main job but i remember getting up in the morning and kind of grabbing my kit and and sorting myself out and and joining the rest of the guys at the front entrance where we were going to leave about sort of 3 30 in the morning yeah. well um our interpreter decided that being in a sleeping bag was more important than going for a walk and so we kind of left a little bit a little bit later right um he eventually turned up and, you know, we made our exit out the, at the front gate and uh, I made it about 150 metres outside the patrol base when I activated an improvised explosive device or an IED. Wow. So that threw me in the air and I landed, um, I was thrown away from the rest of the guys and landed on the floor unconscious and I was probably only con unconscious for about three or four seconds. And then I came to and then realised kind of instantly that my life had changed in a in a heartbeat really um you know my right leg was no longer there 
my left leg was degloved from my ankle to my knee. Oh. I'd done it on my right arm, you know, amongst other injuries, and and I was in a pretty bad way. And um, you know, I could see everything that had happened to me, and I didn't think I was really going to, you know, I didn't think I was going to make it. I didn't think I was going to make it back to Camp Bastion, to be honest with you. Um, but I was really fortunate. Um, you know, the guys they decided quickly that they couldn't treat me there because obviously I was the medic. Um, sure. They they got me to the front entrance of our patrol base as fast as they could. And um, a couple other medics there, you know, basically they saved my life. Um, if I hadn't been thought they did that day, then I wouldn't be sat here talking to you now. Sure. Um, so they, you know, I was swallowed up, um, I was bandaged up, and obviously a Chinook was, was called to come and pick me up. And, and I think the fact that the, the interpreter being late that day or that morning um, actually saved my life. Okay. Because an Afghan national soldier had been shot in a different camp somewhere else and the MERT or the medical emergency response team had been put in the air to go and pick him up. Um, the Chinook was directed to me because my wounds were considered worse and um, they picked me up to take me back to, to Camp Bastion. And I remember being loaded onto the Chinook and um, I, was in the, I was in the back uh, and it was pitch black in there and I remember them kind of working on me and um, they were asking me all sorts of like really important medical questions and I kind of refused to answer their questions because I was in so much pain. Um, and I remember landing and the guys that actually take you off the Chinook are the Camp Bastion Fire Brigade. And they're all sort of, you know, British guys uh, from the fire service that have volunteered to go out there on a, on a tour. Um, mm -hmm. And they're the ones that pick you up and, and, and help take guys off the Chinook. Yeah. And I remember thinking that, you know, I'll never be a fireman at that point. And it was quite, um, yeah, it was quite, there was no kind of emotion attached to it. It was just like, right, well, that's never going to happen. So kind of move on. Right. And I was loaded onto an ambulance and then taken um, to the emergency department, which is where, you know, um, that's where they stabilised me and sort of operated on me for the next few hours. Um, and I remember going, sort of my last recollections are, are, are kind of going from the dark into the light and actually feeling quite exposed and, and and I couldn't really hold on for much longer then. And, you know, I kind of begged them to put me to sleep. And, and you know, eventually they did. I couldn't hold, I couldn't deal with that, the pain anymore. And I needed to, you know, to, to sleep, as it were, to get away from that discomfort. Sure, sure. I mean, none of us, well, the majority of us can't even begin to imagine what that pain must be like. And for you being a medic, you obviously understood the situation you were in. Um, so that must have been absolutely quite yeah. imagine what that was like for you. Yeah, I mean, it did. It made me think that I wasn't going to make it. It really did. And um, it made me think that um, I wasn't going to see my wife again, you know. And we'd only been married for a really short space of time at that point. Um, we'd, only, it, we'd, we'd only been married for 87 days. And I didn't oh. think I'd... You know, well, when I got to the hospital, I thought there was a better chance because in my mind it was like stepping stone. So as soon as I'd been, I was back at the patrol base, I felt that my life, there was more chance. Sure. When I got to Chinook, it was, you know, my chances were, of survival were increasing. And then every time, you know, I got somewhere and, that, you know, particularly when I got to Camp Bastion, um, I felt my chances of survival were going up. Um, you know, and Camp Bastion was 
the hospital there was ridiculous. The amount of people that they saved there, I think the stats were that if you if you got there alive, um, you had a ninety six percent chance of leaving alive as a as a sort of a, a British, you know, as a, a Western soldier, and um, they were very very good at sort of um, at stabilizing people and making sure that they they left that place alive. Incredible! Wow, awesome. As obviously, we're all really glad they did get you get you sorted. What was? How long did you stay there before you were flown back to? Um, I presume you were flown back to Birmingham, were you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, so um, I was actually only so I was hit on the Monday and I was back in the UK by Tuesday morning. Wow! Really, really That's quick. Fast turnaround, isn't it? Yeah. And we, you know, I know a lot of my journey because. We, we get given these blue books, um, which is like a patient uh, journey. And so people are into it to say what's happened to you along your journey. And right. the pilots left me kind of um, a note and some maps of the journey. And they'd actually, they're over Prague and got caught, called back to the UK to pick up a, um, a medical team to go and pick up, you know, me. Right. So um, they then obviously returned to the UK picked up the, this team, flew to Turkey, uh, changed crews, landed, picked me up, back to Turkey, and then flew back on to, to Birmingham. Because their crews, they kind of like, um, they always uh, fly with two flight crews, so they can just change over, because they, I mean, they must, it must, they must have left that morning not knowing that they'd be, they'd be gone for a couple of days, which sure. is essentially what they were. Um, so, you know, I know quite a lot of the detail about sort of you know um my my casualty evacuation back to the uk yeah uh, but yeah i was hit on the monday back in the, in the uk tuesday morning for my first of my first operation in the uk but my my um one of three that week so i was operating on the monday the tuesday and the wednesday wow and then wow. i woke up on the, on the friday morning so they kept me sedated until until friday Wow, that's incredible, the amount of work that happened. I mean, I guess I had to because you're in such a critical con condition. Um, but how long was your recovery period? What happened next? Well, I was only... Um, it, it's, I mean, I remember being in hospital and I, obviously it was, you know, it was uncomfortable. Um, but I was only in hospital for about five weeks. I wasn't there for that long. Um, and I think I started to get sort of a lot better, probably after about three weeks, even though I was still, you know, I still I was having surgery still. So I was still getting whisked away um, from surgery sort of, um, you know, in that first couple of weeks still. Um, but yeah, I, re I was released um, sort of just coming up, well, it's probably about the 4th of December. That I was released from hospital um but you know you have to go there's some some hurdles to cross on that way and you know you need a visit home before you go before you get released you um get the opportunity to go down to the local pub um and that's just because they want to kind of like build you back up you know to, to be back in um everyday life so there was a right passage going down to the local pub which is called the uh, the country girl and uh, it was you know, I remember going down and having a pint down there, and it was, it was a, it was, it was a special time. You know, because my wife took me down in my wheelchair, um, and I knew then that sort of my 
path to recovery was well on its way. So I soon found myself down in um, Epsom at Headley Court. And I think I got there about the 8th of December. Um, and I had a bet with my consultant that I'd be walking before Christmas. And, um, and actually I was. Wow. So, yeah, um, I wasn't, uh, albeit in, in a set of, sort of parallel bars, um, and I wasn't allowed to take my legs home with me, but um, yes, I was up and walking, and I was, I was moving forward in the right direction, both phys- you know, metaphorically and physically. You know. Wow, sure. That's incredible. I love that you actually made a bet with your consultant. Yeah, he still hasn't paid that bet. Oh, really? Oh, dear. <laughs> I, think I'm, I'm, I don't think he needs to, though, somehow. Uh, I'm sure he probably helped you enough along yeah. the way. Yeah. yeah, as did, you know, you know, my whole, I mean, my whole team around me was huge, you know, um, both, well, you know, the guys um, from all different nationalities and all different um, services back in, in Afghanistan, you know, to back in Sally Oak Hospital and then, you know, uh, down in Epsom at Heli Coy, it was, you know, there's a lot of people sort of supporting me and, and helping me on the way. Awesome, awesome. How, uh, reflecting on sort of the journey and what you knew was going to happen because of your medical um, background, how did you cope on a, on a, I mean, I love the fact that you made this bet, but on a mental level, how were you feeling about it all? You know, I know you have the physical pain and the physical challenges, but mentally, you know, losing your legs is a massive, massive life-changing experience. Yeah, but I was also surrounded by a lot of people in the same situation as me. Right. So, you know, both at Headley Court um, and at um, Silly Oak, um, I'll, you know, there was people that were in a similar situation to me and some of them were a lot in a, in a, in a much worse situation than I was. Right. So, um, although, you know, clearly I, I was upset and, and it was a life-changing experience, but... Um, our mentality at Headley Court was, well, this has happened to us. And it wasn't even something that was vocalised. It was kind of a, like an unwritten, um, you know, set of ideas that we were going to move forward as best we could. And we, and I think we have done that collectively, individually, if that makes sense. So there's loads of guys out there doing some incredible stuff, you know, whether it's on TV, whether it's driving cars, um, whether it's, um, you know, Paralympian sport, the guys are doing some incredible stuff, you know, writing books, all sorts of really, really cool stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I think the mentality in the armed forces is one of um, competition, but kind of healthy competition. Uh-huh. And that was definitely present at Headley Court. You know, we pushed each other in the right direction um, just by by our actions really and so I wanted to do the same stuff that the guys were doing that had been injured before me and and hopefully you know we the rest of us set an example as as um as we were coming through and and learning to walk and and uh you know take part in in all the activities that were going on at, at uh, Headley Court. Yeah I mean you, you say about the other guys being inspirational i know that you're pretty inspirational yourself and that you do a lot of speaking gigs and raising money for, for different charities um do you want to tell us a little bit about how 
that sort of evolved and, and when you started doing that? Well, I got a lot of help from a lot of charities when I was first injured and I felt um, that it wasn't my, I felt that it was a debt that had to be paid and I owed that money back in some way or I, or I owed that help back in some way. So um, it was almost not expect, it, we, we expected of ourselves to, to, um, to do something to aid that process whether it was, you know, cycling across America, um, whether it was standing up in front of, you know, a corporate group and, and speaking on a charity's behalf. Um, it was kind of, I think we, it was a debt that had to be paid, if that makes sense. Um, um, that's the only way I can, I can really describe it because I felt that I had to replace the money that I'd used for the next guy that was coming through and that they could have, the same support that I did so yeah. it was kind of almost you know we were replacing what we had used yeah that's interesting you say that because um in my mind I'm feeling no you've served your country you've done what you you know a really really important job and these wonderful charities are I mean it's great that you are supporting them but in a way I don't like I don't like to think that you feel like I know I'm not getting this across quite right, but yeah, I don't, like, mean, I don't yeah. really feel like you owe anybody anything because you've done your service. Do you know what I mean? And we should all be giving to these charities willingly. But I love the fact that you you do still have your own sense of service and, and giving back. And because there's lots of people in the world that are takers, you know, and uh, there you are giving all the way. But it wasn't really kind of that wasn't kind of the military sort of thing. And we still wanted to contribute in some way. And I think, in a way, that was an easy way for us to do that. Um, because also, you know, you could argue we were getting something from it. So I was getting the enjoyment of cycling across America or, um, you know, some of the long-distance swims I've done um, or parachuting. So I was, I, was, I was getting something from it because I was repeating the stuff that, I'd used, that I had done, um, whether it was triathlon, swimming or whatever it was or parachuting but i was doing it and 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 getting people to to sort of donate at the same time sure. so you you know from if i was being selfish then i was getting something from it as well and right. something that was helping me sure sure can you imagine what it might be like for someone that has sustained an injury as severe as yours if they weren't within that military community yeah, because we, you know, I bump into people all the time that have, um, you know, that have been hurt in, in a similar way and haven't got that support. Um, you know, I I met a guy that uh, had been involved in, in, in an RTA, in a road traffic accident, and lost both of his legs. Um, and I was acutely aware that he wasn't going to get the same support that I was going to get. Uh, I have tried to help him over the years, but he's kind of... Um, quite closed off um, but then one of my friends um, her mum she fell off the back of a boat and uh, on the Norfolk Broads and chopped her foot off on the propeller of the boat wow and, uh, you know she's um, she's an incredible woman she's like she's 70 so she lost her leg and um, the system didn't give her a wheelchair that she could use so gave her my wheelchair for a while um which actually 
I mean, that small thing, I know that it, it um, if I hadn't done it, it, it would have meant that there were certain things that would have cost her an awful lot of money. You know, a daughter would have had to come down from Banbury and she'd have to bring the kids with her during term time. It would have been, an, a, it would have been a nightmare. So just the small thing of being able to get me to give, be able to sort of loan her my wheelchair solved a whole bunch of problems for her. Anyway, she was walking. Yeah, you know, she, so she's lost a left, uh, a lower uh, right, uh, no left leg, and she was walking. I think three months after she was injured, back and playing tennis again. Wow! And she's and she's seventy. She's amazing, absolutely amazing. That's very cool. Very cool. And not super cool that you were able to um, to lend her your wheelchair. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, um, and it was just a small thing I could do, but I think, you know, just knowing, I think it meant that a lot of things were made easy for her. Right. And you mentioned the the guy that maybe was a little bit closed off. If you, and sure, then you know that you've tried to help him, but if you could give advice, if there's anyone sort of watching this now that has maybe just suffered a similar loss, what would your sort of key advice be to them to keep themselves motivated and going through this time? Well, I think, you know, the exercise is absolutely key and raising your heart rate in some way. It doesn't matter in, you know, who you are, whether you've got legs or no legs or you're in a wheelchair or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, but raising your heart rate in some way for a small part of the day is, is really key to, to, getting, to getting well again. And even if that's just taking a really short walk, um, and if that's what you can manage, then that's what you can manage, because that's certainly what I could manage in, in the sort of first few weeks um, when I was injured. Um, and also, I think talking about stuff um, without the expectation of a, of, of a solution um, is really important. And also, that's, the, that's, that's kind of both people. So someone with a problem or an issue and someone listening that's the whole point that you're there to listen, not offer a solution because there might not be a solution. Right. Um, and not every, you know, not every, and I think that's sometimes our problem. We, we find, we try to find a solution to a problem when sometimes there's it, there isn't a solution to an issue, a problem. Sure. Um, it's, you know, for me, yeah, it was about exercise and talking about stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And being heard. Yeah. Um, I'm a listening volunteer for the Samaritans as well and we don't give advice but we just sort of listen and let people explore their feelings and it is just the process of getting it all out or getting it a little bit more straight in your head can really help but I know before I had the, the Samaritans training I would probably be one of those people would be like oh you know how can I help this person what can I you know what can we do to get this sorted but sometimes it's not about finding a solution it's just about feeling like someone's heard you you know that they understand what you're yeah. doing i find myself often signposting pe things to people so you know you might listen to a, an issue or a problem and then you can say well have you tried this organization or, or this charity or have you phoned this number um because there are solutions out there um and it's just knowing the best way to sort of direct people in, into those sort of areas yeah yeah and do you keep in touch with some of your um, buddies that you made when you were at Hadley Court, that kind of thing? Is it, you've got a support network? Yeah, and we've, um, two of the guys, so Dave Wiseman, David Wiseman and Dave Henson, they came up with this idea to create this club called the, the Kazibak Club. So all the guys that were Kazibaked, so casualty evacuated from either Iraq or Afghanistan, um, 
through the result of an enemy sort of you know, enemy action, um, you can join this club. Um, and it's 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 an amazing group of guys, and and it's there for kind of, sort of three reasons really. Um, one being research because we're quite keen um, to allow sort of relevant research to be uh, conducted on us, if that makes sense. So um, it would be, I think it'd be wrong of us as a group of individuals to not allow that because some of us, sh we shouldn't have survived and, and the actions of, you know, clinicians that day allowed us to live. And I think if they can learn from us, then it can help other people. So that's kind of one of the key things to the club. Um, there's obviously a social part of it where we, we stay connected. And then we also want to raise money for charity, but we don't want to do it for a military charity and we're certainly not doing it for ourselves. So um, I think for the net, you know, I think we're trying to raise um, 22 grand for um, the Great Ormond Street Hospital. And, and that's our challenge for this sort of, until we've done it really for the next wow. year or so. So wow. yeah, um, that's a really useful tool, um, the Kazibat Club, and it fulfills a, a massive, um, sort of hole that Headley Court's left, I suppose. Right, awesome. Um, so tell me when, like, when's the next speaking gig coming up? I think you've got one at the end of January, haven't you? Or... Yeah, um, I'm doing uh, one locally to where I live, so in Winchester. Um, and it's all rather confusing because the guy that's organised it, he too is called Simon Harmer. Um, so we've both got the same name and he owns a, a company called Marmalade on Toast. Um, which is uh, an awesome, you know, he's got a really cool company there. And uh, they wanted to raise some money for um, uh, for Solent Mind. Um, so they laid on, you know, they're hosting this this event and I'm just going to go and say a few words there really, um, tell my story and hopefully raise a load of money for, for, for Solent Mind. Awesome, awesome. Um... And I'm guessing you'll you'll send me your links and everything so that I can share them at the end. Yeah, if anyone do, yeah. follow along and you know you're active on Twitter and whatnot, so um, I'll share all of that. But is there yeah. anything else that you want to sort of tell me about or tell the viewers about? Or yeah, I'll, I'll leave. Well, there's there's two things. There's two things. One, I'm going to do my own ch sort of charity thing this year, um, and I've yet to release it because it's January never got any money anyway but for sort of this is my 10 year anniversary so I want to raise money for I want to raise £10,000 for five different charities so um, Great Ormond Street um, in conjunction with uh, the, the Kaziavac Club um, Blesma the British Limitless Ex-Servicemen's Association have been amazing and you know they've really really filled a, a void for me you know both getting back into work and all you know they've just been a really amazing charity um i want to help access adventure which is a really small charity um helping all sorts of people um get back out there and do adventure training um and one of their key uh sports is doing um, adaptive water skiing um i'm going to help um al wilton as well who are, are a small charity uh, located in salisbury and they're gonna they're, they're gonna open soon, but they're gonna help um, service leavers that are really kind of struggling and haven't got a place to live. So uh, they're gonna offer residential uh, um, support, and with the idea that when you leave there, you 
are in a functioning position to enter society again, um, you know, with your own house and, um, you know, you know, get, get a job and, and move forward in life. Um, and the last charity I'm going to support is, and I've forgotten which one it is. Um, <laughs> there's a fifth one anyway. Um, it will spring into my mind in a minute, but I've completely forgotten. As soon as um, we end the yeah, call, it'll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I've set up a just giving page, and 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 you know, I really want other people to get involved as well because I, I want to do this collectively. I just I don't want to do it on my own. I want to make it sort of a group experience. So, if anybody's planning to do an event, however big or small this year, I'd love it if they used my just giving page, and um, you know, help support these wonderful charities. Because uh, oh, that was it, Teenage Cancer Trust. Um, they've done, you know, I mean, I've worked with them a few, uh, quite a bit over the years, and their kids utterly inspire me every time that I, you know, that I uh, that I go see them. They're um, an amazing, amazing charity that do some amazing things with the money that they they, they get they get donated. Awesome. So yeah, that's what I want to do this year. Um, and I, I was before I finish, I just want to say one thing that I, that was really key to my. Um, my recovery I suppose and I remember a nurse coming into my into my room and saying to me uh to try and find three good things from one bad and I thought to me, I was lying there and I thought to myself no it can't be it can't be three it's got to be five so I felt it's my job to find things however big or small and and, and initially they were small um that were a positive thing as a result of being blown up and you know i can honestly say that i found those things um on a regular basis and yeah i had to sometimes sit down and think about it and they might have seemed small at the time but i think it was my job to make them bigger and bigger each week or each month or each year and um i try to still live like that um and you know like nobody's perfect but i think i do a, a you know a pretty good job of of finding those things that are a, are a good thing you know are a positive are a positive thing after what happened to me yeah uh, well you all this amazing charity work that you're doing and all the speaking gigs uh, you know that that's one major well lots of major things that's come from this and i love that because that's that's sort of like the whole big lad movement that's what it's sort of based around the fact that my mum named me Pollyanna after the book and film Pollyanna where the little girl looks for positives and negatives so yeah. I love that that was something that the nurse said to you and that's helped yeah. you so much yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it stayed with me you know it stayed with me all those years that you know to try and find the good from the bad and and um, yeah oh, I hope I've oh. done it my favourite part of this interview is that one of the nurses caring for Simon told him to find three good things for every one negative thing. In true military style, he went above and beyond to make the goal five instead of three. And it's such a Be Glad movement way of thinking to um, find positives and negatives. It also caught my imagination when Simon was talking about his evacuation and how getting to each point on the journey back to the UK was a marker in his mind of his chances of getting out of the situation alive. In my mind, it was like a ramped up metaphor for a lot of people's problems. If you can just make it to the next step or the next stage, your chances of success increase. Just concentrate on the next step each time rather than getting overwhelmed.
As always, I'm looking for new guests, so if you know anybody who'd be willing to share their story, then please do get in touch. It doesn't matter if it's a story that's similar to one that's already been told, because I really do believe your story in your voice has the ability to help someone in their time of need. The conversation continues over on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so if you'd like to leave a comment, please do, and I'd love to hear from you. Be Glad Movement podcast is obviously free to listen to, but if you'd like to help me raise money for the Samaritans, then please head to beglad.co.uk and follow the donation link. Anything you can afford to give would be so gratefully received. With so much love, you've been listening to Simon Harmer, Pollyanna and the Be Glad Movement. Until next time, look after yourselves and each other. Thank you.